From broadcasting in a studio above the Blue Mouse in 1979 to streaming intergalactically from the Guadalupe neighborhood in 2022, we're grateful for the generations of folks who value KRCL. Celebrate the power of community to do incredible things with your year-end gift at krcl.org. Home Bone's all right with me. Home Bone is the way it should be. Home Bone is a good thing. Plant that bell and let it rain. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and joining us in the Zoom cloud, Al Dynstrick, not KRCL's punk rock farmer. Hey, Al. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. You know what today is? Today, today is KRCL's birthday. 42 years old. Woohoo! <laughs> 42. Boy, 40 was a big mark, but we just keep clicking on, don't we? That's right. These that's right. These last two years of these last two years have sure been a little bit trying, but <laughs> we haven't gone anywhere, and we're still on the air and still bringing the information. You know, I started listening in 1979 when it first started, the winter of 1979, and uh, this is kind of a special day also because it's my mom's birthday, but... Ah. I started listening to KRCL and I heard punk rock music and I heard under underground music and independent music and it just lit a spark. It lit a fire under me and I went on to play in punk rock bands and tour all over the states and I had a my life was different because of KRCL and I know there's a lot of people out there who have the same story. I I I I don't know what we'd do without it. KRCL, the little station that did, not could, it did, and it still does. And I'm so happy that I get to be a part of it and volunteer and, you know, build my community. And my part of the community is the urban farm community. This is the beauty of KRCL. It lets us all have a part Yes. Everyone. Yes. The diversity absolutely. is what it's all about. Yeah. So grateful that after 42 years, um, still going strong, and that you and I get to be a part of that stewardship. And folks listening out there, we can't do it without you. It's Listeners Community Radio. You can always learn more about becoming a member at krcl.org. So, Al, let's do this. Let's get on with the show. Coming up tonight. Coming up tonight. Oh, what a great interview with Megan Baxter. She's calling in from Vermont. They have snow there. We don't here, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and her book is a mem- um, Farm Girl, a Memoir, and a great story about love and finding love in the garden, on the farm. So we also are going to be talking squirrels. You know how they kind of terrify me these days because they eat my garden, right, Al? I know, and I've seen too many of them, too, and I'm kind of getting worried about what's going to happen. <laughs> well, the Natural History Museum of Utah has its second annual Squirrel Fest coming up, and there's a citizen science program to take note of them, like the Audubon Society measures birds during Christmas. Uh, they're going to be doing that all next week. Stick around to find out more. Plus, we've got Skywatcher Leo T. We'll check in with DIY creative Mama Africa. So stick around for all of that. But we're going to start where we always start, with a local band, Night Marcher from the archives, Al. Yes, these guys played with us a while back, and uh, 
Rob, the the main member of this band, put he plays a lot of the instruments himself, and he's a pizza maker too. And we, I remember when he was on, we talked quite a bit about making pizza. So he's uh, cooking and making music. He's right up, uh, right up our alley. We'll put a link in the show notes to that show so you can check out the backstory. But this song is Lucid Air. Night Marcher, homegrown on KRCL 90.9 FM.
Cyber Seniors and Epic Deliberate Digital are nonprofits that address social isolation among seniors and give rewarding volunteer opportunities to youth. Learn more about their no-cost training and start helping seniors in Utah on the Connect page of krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Mobile Moon Co-op a female and queer collective and mobile apothecary offering handcrafted herbal products, teas, and cultural events and workshops. More information at mobilemooncoop.org or on social media platforms at mobilemooncoop. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. In the sky tonight at dusk, you can't miss the treasures in the night sky. If you just look up, you'll discover the fun lineup of bright Venus, which in a telescope is a crescent, in the southwest. Then arcing eastward, you can't miss Jupiter, which is closing in on Venus as Venus heads eastward every night and Jupiter heads west. And in between is the more subtle Saturn, which uh, we have a neat photo of on the Skywatcher Facebook page, taken from the orbit of the moon by NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance orbiter. Then a little later, look up above the southern horizon and find pulsating blue solitary formal hot, the autumn star. Soak it up. Then look up and left at about a 45 degree angle for an orange star called Beta Ceti. This is the far western star of the dim big constellation Cetus the Whale. Yeah, we're star hopping now. With Cetus the Whale in mind, we dip back down to Earth and into the oceans, where whales sing their eerie songs deep below the surface and can be heard for over 600 miles. And an echo penetrates the seafloor and bounces back up. Studying the frequencies, scientists gain a low-resolution ultrasound of the Earth's crust. Wow, whales. Let's lift up now. With the little Skywatcher spacecraft, similar things going on here on Mars with NASA's Mars Insight probe that landed in 2018. Studying Mars quakes rippling through the planet, InSight's data enables scientists to get a rough idea of its mantle and thickness of its crust. Now Swiss geophysicists have fine-tuned the lander's instruments to look directly under the surface, using a technique to listen to wind and oceans on Earth that shake the ground on Earth. They use that to measure and map the subsurface of Mars. And what are we looking for on Mars? Water. And we have found evidence of water flows, ancient seabeds, lakes, rivers, gorges, and ice caps. The ice caps are made mostly of water, with a layer of carbon dioxide on top. This leads to the quest to find, you got it, life on Mars. And it's one sky, many cultures. In her book, The Sirens of Mars, planetary scientist Sarah Stewart-Johnson, who worked on NASA Spirit Opportunity and Curiosity rovers, writes about studying microorganisms, and as such relates a story written by Voltaire in 1752 about a tall, tall visitor, 120,000 feet tall. Woo! Whoa! Come on! Oh, but think about how tall we are compared to a blade of grass, a grasshopper, or a gnat, or a paramecium. So this visitor initially believes the Earth is devoid of life, but continues looking around and standing in the Baltic Ocean spies a moving speck and picks it up with his fingernail. He discovers that it is a whale, then discovers another moving speck and with his magnifying glass looks in and it's a boat full of Arctic explorers commiserating with them about being so small and asking if they had always been in that pitiful condition a little better than annihilation and what they found to do on a planet that appears belonging to whales. Hmm. Well, we'll continue with this on our next adventure from microlife to whales on Earth, the planets and the stars. Check the website for all sources. Keep looking up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. Thank you, Skywatcher Leo T. A volunteer here for Punk Rock Farmer Friday. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Skywatcher's Facebook page, and you can catch up on all the sources for his report tonight. 
And now, Al, I've been shining a light on DIY creatives the last week or so as we get into our holiday shopping. I want to encourage folks to shop local. And this weekend, there are so many craft markets and pop-ups that are starting. Uh, One in particular is Craft Lake City at the Monarch in Ogden. And I spoke with Mama Africa, who will be on hand there with some of her Pili Pili and other sauces. Here's, Here's that conversation. Hi, Mama Africa. How are you? Hi, Laura. I'm good. I'm excited. <laughs> you know, with the pandemic and everything, I haven't seen you very much because festivals have been, you know, not happening. But we're starting to come back out, including Craft Lake City at the Monarch in Ogden. And I wanted to touch base with you. And in setting up this interview, you told me you've been having quite a time of it, starting with the stroke. Oh, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes, it's been like three years. Um, I had a stroke. You know, I was very stressed out. I have my sister who died here in South Lake City, and I have to shut down my restaurant. And right when I shut down my restaurant, I had the stroke. So I ended up in the hospital at the U. They took very, very good care of me. I was in there for about uh, eight months. And then we end up uh, in January 2020 when we have the COVID. So that was another, you know, setback. We have to shudder for like uh, a year until we get those vaccines. So here I am. <laughs> now, you're still trying to keep your Pili Pili and other sauces going, and that's what you're going to have on hand at the market, right, on this weekend? That's right, that's right. I'm going to be at the Craft Lake uh, Holiday Market. It's going to be in Oden, and we're going to uh, try to, to to do a good sale with my Pili Pili and the oil that we have. We have a new Pili Pili. It's our only one. So, I mean, you know, we, we so, so happy to have everyone come and support because I'm trying to get back uh, on my feet right here um, and relaunch my business because uh, that's my baby. So I just want to see it, you know, growing. <laughs> we will put a link in tonight's show notes to the GoFundMe that is also out there to support Mama Africa. But I was hoping you could explain Pili Pili sauce for us one more time. All right. So Pili Pili, it's a nice condiment that everybody eats in Africa. I mean, it's so spicy. It adds a, like another dimension to the food. And you can eat it with everything because it's all vegan. And there's no milk, no cheese, no eggs in it. Put it on your taco, your steak, your your chicken, your soup. I mean, anything you can name. And uh, the the beauty of it, you can cook with it, you can marinate your meat, or you can barbecue, or just impress your friend at the table. (laughs) The pili pili sauce, a little taste of Africa, right from Mama (laughs) Africa. You're also known for your beignets. I don't know if you'll be able to do any of that Mm. at Craft Lake City, but I'm hoping you can get back to it in the weeks and months ahead. 
Oh yeah, that's what I'm planning to do. Uh, at this uh, South Lake, um, at the Craft Lake um, Market, we're not gonna have a uh, cooking, but we have a uh, package uh, of food. So that's why I'm gonna go sell my hot sauces. But uh, you know what, Laura, you know it. You know those beignets, <laughs> once you call on everybody to come, like last time at the traditional living, living traditional, everybody came and I was like, oh, well, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. People love Mama Africa's cooking. Do you still have a website or Facebook where people can catch up with you outside of the Craft Lake City Market? Yeah. I do have a website. We're still, um, you know, trying to um, make it really nice, but you can still check on it. It's Mama Kitoko at .net. Great. Mm -hmm. I will be sure to put a link in the show notes tonight to that as well as your GoFundMe. It is so good to see your face, even if it's just on Zoom, and to know that you're back. You're back out there with your pili pili sauce, Mama Africa. Yes, yes. Try to keep the winter warm, you know. (laughs) And that's Mama Africa, who will be at Craft Lake City's Holiday Market at the Monarch in Ogden tonight and tomorrow. Check tonight's show notes for a link. Pili Pili sauce, pretty spicy as I recall, Al. Uh, as Yes, I do recall. You know, I have a, a funny story about Mama Africa. Yeah? At the uh, Craft Lake City, it was it was a couple years back when they had that gnarly windstorm yes! that came through. Down at Gallivan. And I was holed up in Mama Africa's tent with her and her workers and all the wonderful food. And we were like hovering, squatting down and and cowering down because the tent was about to blow away. <laughs> Great experience for sure. Well, I love Mama Africa. Yeah, and she has been struggling, folks. So do check her out at the craft markets, in particular Craft Lake City this weekend. Hey, Al, the Natural History Museum of Utah is going to host a week-long Squirrel Fest, December 6th through the 12th, a do-it-yourself, socially distanced event for a second year in a row. And, uh, of course, the big thing here, Al, is they want to rally Utahns as citizen scientists to help track the distribution of squirrels in the state. You know, you know, I got feelings about squirrels, Al, right? It's your pet peeve. I know they've been eating you out of your garden, house and home. A particular type of squirrel. And joining us to talk about it, we have with us from the Natural History Museum of Utah, uh, Eric Rickert, mammalogist and NHMU's curator of vertebrates. Hi, Eric. Hello, Ellen, or Laura. Thank you. Absolutely. And Ellen Erickson returning as the museum citizen science program manager. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for being here. You showed me a scary poster right before Al got on, so you might have to flash that again in our Zoom session. But um, this is celebration of squirrels. But I got to tell you, I got beef with the, the fox squirrels. Eric, they seem to be everywhere in the urban setting, and they ate all my pumpkins last year. They ate your pumpkins. They did. They ate everything. Well, well, they, yes, they, their their population here in Salt Lake is or in the valley is growing leaps and bounds, um, and they just seem to be getting growing exponentially uh they're increasing in areas where they've been for a while and then they're they're still spreading into areas that that they haven't been seen in before they're not so, native right no they're not native they're native to the um eastern and midwestern part of of the united states 
but they don't naturally occur west of the front range of the Rockies. However, they were introduced, they have been introduced for more than 100 years. They were uh, first introduced into California in the early 1900s and have spread and they've had problems with them there uh, for a long time. Then they've been transported to various cities in the West. Um, locally, they were, or regionally, they were in Missoula and Boise and, and places like that for for quite some time. And about 10 years ago, well, we've been saying 10 years ago for a couple of years, so 10 to 12 years ago, maybe, um, they first started showing up in Salt Lake, um, first in you know, along the Jordan River, uh, communities like Rose Park were the first areas, and then up into the avenues. They're tree squirrels, fox squirrels are tree squirrels, um, so they climb a lot. And that's what makes them so obvious as a newcomer. Even people who are only casual observers note these big bushy-tailed orange animals that are moving along telephone lines and things like that and chattering at them, oh, yeah. eating their pumpkins. Yes, yes. And they're fast. <laughs> I call them, okay, this isn't kind. I call them meth squirrels because I've seen them chase each other around a tree at such speed I can hardly scan them. Yeah, yeah. You, you see that? You see a lot of young squirrels doing that, chasing one another, maybe litter mates. Uh, you see adults doing it when they want to get some business done, um, which they do twice, twice a year. There are two breeding, breeding uh, periods in the year. So they, uh, they can have like four, up to four young, maybe even more sometimes per litter. And um, yeah, so they, they do it like rabbits. Uh, they're, they're, really, they're really increasing. Al, have you seen them out in so your neck I of the woods? In, I have seen them out here now, but I, I grew up in New York, right. and um, uh, the, it, it looks to me like what we would call almost back there a red, a red squirrel. Is, that, it, would you, is, there, is it defined in that way at all? Well, uh, Al, you may be talking about actually a different species, uh -huh, um, uh -huh. which, is, which is, is called the red squirrel. And actually, we have that in Utah as well. Um, they generally are, are less common in the city, and they always have been because they're, they're specialists on um, conifer trees, cone-bearing trees, pines, firs, things like that. Um, in the east, I think they, they occur in, in a broader range of habitats, but um, the other squirrel that is common in New York, tree squirrel, is the gray squirrel, eastern gray squirrel. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but I, the fox squirrel, um, is less common uh, in the Northeast. Uh, it sort of falls out of this picture, I think, you know, around Maryland and Southern Pennsylvania. I can't remember right off my hand, but I, I used to live in Connecticut. We didn't have fox squirrels there. Um, we had plenty of, of gray squirrels and red squirrels, but um, what part of New York? In upstate New York in the gateway to the Adirondacks. Yeah. Yeah, there might be fox squirrels up there, but if you if you you said red squirrel, and um, and so that's one of the one of the animals that we that Ellen and I are trying to get people to to also look for because they occur uh, naturally at higher elevations in the coniferous forests, but 
They also occur in the urban landscape in places where there are conifer trees. Um, so last year, when we kicked off the, the first uh, squirrel fest, we went to Liberty Park, where both of the species were present back then. And so we're going there this Saturday to see, to see if they're still there. And then we're going to go to another site as well the following Saturday. All right, let's get Ellen in here and talk about the citizen science aspect of this. I think folks are familiar with maybe the bird count that the Audubon Society does. So we're trying to do something similar with squirrels, right? That's right. So the, the Christmas bird count is an, uh, an Audubon endeavor that's been happening for well over 100 years. Annually on Christmas, groups of people all over the country go out and survey birds in a specific area. And because of that, there are fabulous records of birds existing in places over this long period of time. And you can begin to see maybe shifts in where populations are starting to live or where they're not living anymore, some changes in their distribution. And so Squirrel Fest uh, is sort of the beginnings of that. We're at, we're at the, ground, the ground level of starting to collect some of this interesting squirrel data as Eric was mentioning, fox squirrels are a pretty new arrival to Utah. And so it's a really unique time scientifically to be able to notice the species and how they're moving around the valley, what they're interacting with, who they're interacting with. And capturing that data is really hard for a small team of scientists. And so we depend on the public Anybody who happens to be out looking for squirrels uh, to head to the Natural History Museum of Utah's website. We've got a form there you can fill out to say, yes, I did see a squirrel. We've got pictures of all of the different squirrel species you're likely to see here in Salt Lake City there. So you can learn a little bit about what you're seeing out of your window as you're driving around or hanging out at your house. And then you can tell us what you're noticing. How are they behaving? What are they eating? What are they running around on? How are they acting? What kind of food are they eating in your garden? All that sort of stuff. Pumpkins, really gourds, everything. <laughs> All of the goodies. Oh, man. And so it becomes a cool record for us then to not only track the distribution of the species as they're expanding along the Wasatch Front because they are expanding their range. We also get to learn a little bit more about how they're behaving and impacting the environment because we just don't know yet really well, what their impact I is. Well, I can tell you what they did in my garden, but exactly what are we going to do with this data, Ellen and Eric? Well, that's a good question. First of all, we've we had such a, a really great response um, from the first Squirrel Fest that we were sort of inundated with stuff. And, um, and we have to sort of figure out how we're going to analyze it, how we're going to look at the patterns of behavior, how we're going to associate the, the data that give us an idea about the relative abundance, how many squirrels there are in certain areas with the characteristics of those areas. And this is something that, that requires quite a bit of analysis. So beyond saying that we've seen a wild variety of behaviors um, just by inspecting the data we got, we haven't taken it much further than that. We still don't know, for instance, what the interactions are, the competitive interactions are between the two species, principal species, the red squirrel, the native red squirrel, and, uh, and the introduced fox squirrel. Um, so it, it's going to take us some time to do that. And even though it's been a year since we initiated this, um, I have to say we're kind of slow getting off the, the, the starting blocks on that. But, but the data, the data, it's hard to go through complex um, uh, qualitative 
data and quantitative data too, a mix of these things. So, um, yeah. Well, and to build on that, we really have been getting very quality observations from people, which has been a wonderful surprise to us. And so the type of data that we're getting from community members all along the Wasatch Front has been amazing. And so it's really, it's going to help Eric, especially, I think, come up with new sorts of research questions and help direct where we're starting to take some of this information, which is a pretty exciting thing that it can be a community-driven thing as well. And so observations that may seem normal to somebody because it's a squirrel they see at a bird feeder outside their house all the time, for example, might be a unique thing or might be an interesting thing scientifically that squirrels are doing that you know we don't have access to because we're not hanging out in your yard. So being able to share that is a pretty cool thing. Al, you got any in your yard to report? So, I, you know, I do. I have seen them here. And, uh, you know, I've seen them a lot in your neighborhood in the last couple of years yeah. and a ton of them. And I hadn't seen them here. And I'm about mid-valley, around 4,500 south. And I started to see them here. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, the Laura has had bad experience with these. <laughs> and if they are invasive and they keep coming and we have bad experience, we're going to be taken over by these squirrels. What's going on? Yeah. What's your research? Is it directed at managing the population, Eric? Oh, I think it's probably pretty much impossible to do that. <laughs> I mean, we can, to the extent that we cannot, we cannot eradicate them or catch them all and release them someplace else in their, you know, Iowa or something like that where they belong. But, um, but what we can do is gather information on what the trends are. And it, it always looks like there are more of them around, um, you know, when we, when we look from year to year, but that's, that, that is sort of just our impression. The best thing to do is to get repeated surveys over time at particular places in the valley. Um, and we have to emphasize that if people go out looking for squirrels and they go to a neighborhood park and they don't see any over a period of time, that's important information. Does it mean that they're not there um, or they there's, there's just not adequate resources for them in that place? We won't know that unless people are, are going to these places and even where they've seen them before, are they increasing or are they decreasing? Did you see two species there and now there's only one? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that that you can get sort of a, you know, a, a snapshot picture when you're doing it on one day of the year, like the Christmas bird count. But here we have an opportunity to do something over a period of a week and even beyond squirrels. <laughs> Yes, because folks, you can use not only the form on NHMU's website, but also what's that app that we love to talk about, Ellen? iNaturalist is another place that we, we do check data on. And it's a, it's a fabulous available app you can have on your phone. You can use it on a web browser to take pictures of nature. It becomes a geotag location of whatever it is that you saw. And that's how we initially started noticing the spread of fox squirrels around the valley and what really grew into this squirrel fest endeavor and, and the questions that we now have about, like, where are they living and what are they living around? Well, I looked at the forecast for this weekend, Al. It's going to be like 53 degrees on Saturday. And you're meeting at a sp particular spot on Saturday for folks that may want to join up this Saturday and next. What are those, Ellen? 
We'll be at Liberty Park this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. over by Youth City. We'll be posted up there with the museum tent. You can come find me and Eric. We'll both be there talking about squirrels. Both American red squirrels and, and Eastern fox squirrels live in Liberty Park, so it's a great place to come check them out. We can talk about them. Eric will be giving little mini presentations on the hour um, for three, three, three separate hours, and then we'll do some casual strolls around the park. So come talk to us about squirrels. We'd be happy to hear your stories and show you the form. It's sort of our kickoff to Squirrel Fest, which starts Monday, December 6th, and it runs through December 12th. And you'll be at the International Peace Gardens on Salt Lake City's west side on December 11th. Same time, 10 to 1-ish? Correct. We'll be there, too. We'd love to see you. Well, what is the website where folks can get more information and download that that form or sign up for iNaturalist? Yeah, come learn more about Squirrel Fest at the Natural History Museum's website, nhmu.utah. That edu slash squirrels is our Squirrel Fest page. The form is there. Click on it. It's easy to open it up and you can just start entering data right there from your phone or from a computer. Thanks, Ellen and Eric. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks, you guys. I had one question I just I forgot to ask, Al. I got to know. You're the mammologist. I'm the irritated gardener. And do you look at squirrels as as rodents, as pests or something else? Well, first of all, I do look at them as rodents. Rodent is not a synonym of pest. Um, There are more rodents in the world than there are primates, artiodactyls, any other group of mammals that you want to put together. Um, So they're with us and they're definitely great. And I think I think fox squirrels are beautiful, wonderful animals. But um, agree to disagree. (laughs) They they are. They are. If you're in a in a in a oak hickory forest in in the Midwest yes. or, or Maple Beach Forest in the Northeast. Um, but out here, uh, they're gonna be an urban animal and urban animals can be problematic. Uh, we're gonna have to learn how to live with them. We're gonna have to squirrel proof our attics so they don't get in and nest in those places. We're going to have to learn what kinds of, of plants, um, fruit trees and things like that we can, we can plant how we can harvest from them to beat the squirrels and things of that sort. Um, that's really the, the all we can do um, uh, because they're going to be here. I don't think that, I mean, it could be that they will naturally decline, but it seems very unlikely. Yeah, Al, I started looking up, I, you know this, I started pinning to my Pinterest boards for gardening these squirrel-proof raised garden beds because I can see that <laughs> coming our way. Uh, they won't work. <laughs> Thank you for crushing my soul yet again. I mean, unless you put a fence around it, you know, <laughs> or, you know, something like that. There they are really bright animals, and they're they're going to be able to um, figure out any puzzle you put out for them. Well, thank you so much, Eric and Ellen. We'll make sure to put this in our show notes so folks can get involved in Squirrel Fest and this annual Squirrel Camp. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Aldine. Thanks. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the Natural History Museum and its Squirrel Fest. Uh, Let's get another song from our featured band tonight. This one is Us and Them by... Night Marcher, homegrown on KRCL 90.9 FM. Teacher divvies up the class into two teams. 
you're a homeowner or renter making 200% or less of the federal poverty rate and need help weatherizing your home, Utah Community Action can help. Visit utahca.org for details. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and it is Punk Rock Farmer Friday. Time for Al Dine's Urban Farm Report, and we have another author joining us, if you would like to introduce her and her book. Yes, of course. And um, I think she's out there back east in Connecticut, and um, we're talking with Megan Baxter today. And she's the author of Farm Girl, a memoir. It's great to have you with us, dear. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be part of Punk Rock Farming Friday. <laughs> so you're, I mean, um, anyone who's, you know, wh- what we say, and here, here's where where the punk rock farming mm-hmm. comes in is because we're we're near a city and so we're growing food here yeah. in in our city and that's pretty punk rock and we're feeding people and we're we're promoting local produce and all that stuff and i saw in your book you know you kind of are doing the same thing you're going to market you're selling your food you're mm-hmm. feeding people all the great things that farmers yeah. do um you, you know your love of farming where let's start there where where did it come from I started farming when I was 15. I took my bike down the road and picked strawberries by the court for my first uh, real summer job. And I love being outside. I love not uh, having to wear uncomfortable clothing. I love being able to be whoever I wanted to be. And uh, the farm offered me that opportunity. My mother's family comes from a long history of farmers. So I think this idea of kind of being your own person and being an individual was part of my upbringing. So uh, I said Connecticut, but you're in Vermont, is that correct? I am. Yes, I the farm is in Vermont. I'm sitting in New Hampshire, but I'm all but one mile as the bird flies to it's Vermont. It's that close. So, yeah, <laughs> there's just a river in between us and we go back and forth all the time. Oh so. man, a river runs <laughs> through it. I'm already, exactly. I'm already picturing, <laughs> paint, a, paint a picture for us because I'm already kind of pulling this together in my head. Tell us how large your farm is, where it is and what okay. you grow. Yeah, so the farm in the book in, in Farm Girl is... Um, at the time of the story, it's 40 acres and it's very flat. Uh, the Connecticut River up here is a very gentle, not very wide river and um, very old alluvial floodplains, two different properties, old red barns, very classically New England, except we didn't have cows. That was the one thing that we were missing. <laughs> so at, at, you're in Vermont. Uh, mm-hmm. Farmers really see up close all the cycles of life. Mm-hmm. Vermont has a pretty hot winter, so you're even, it's even more amplified there. Yeah. Yeah. Vermont has um, a great farming culture, but we also have winters like the one you might see out my window right now, uh, where it makes farming maybe a little bit different, a little bit more uncomfortable. <laughs> snow, you have snow yeah. outside your oh, window. We do. <laughs> We've been very lucky. We're, we're 50 degrees here. Ooh. And we're sunny and it's a beautiful day. And it's really weird because, you know, it. you think of global warming and this mm-hmm. is the picture right here for us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh, who's that? That is my, that is my dog, Rosalita Springsteen. Um, <laughs> she is excited probably by somebody on the road. I'm going to ask her just to sit down. Give me one second. Sure, sure. That's why we pre-record. 
So she's so she's named after a Bruce Springsteen song, yes. obviously. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she is. <laughs> I love it. Music mixed Bloody. in with all you do as well as the farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the book, it's um, it's a story of lost love and longing. But and then you find a new love and farm and it's farming. And there's mm-hmm. so much there's so much to fill that void, isn't there? There is. Uh, I think, especially when we're young people, there is this assumption that there's a very straight path to being happy and being successful. But for me, I found that it was a more unconventional one to really love a space and a land and a job rather than to end up in a particular type of relationship. This memoir is more it's 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 a very holistic look at your life mm. and you you spare no spare no one, I would say. Um <laughs> From your from one lover spiraling into addiction to reclaiming the land, so to speak, is your form of worship and grounding. Can you talk about that a bit about how farming is grounding? Because I come from a farming family on one side, and you know, I Al is used to me saying this, <laughs> describing farmers as gamblers, and that's mm. that's an addiction of its own. It is, um, and I'm a some eight years sober over here, so uh, I think there there is a real attraction to the up and down, uh, the opportunity to do it all again, but better that every new season provides us. My as I said, my mother comes from a farming family, dairy farmers up in the central part of Vermont, and it's a very different culture that kind of farming, but. For me, as a young person who was, you know, a person establishing my own harmful habits, uh, I found that the routine of farming and the solitude that it afforded me, as well as the responsibility and empowerment, being able to grow something from seed all the way to a plant that I could sell in my hometown, um, gave me something really reliable that I could look forward to year after year in my life. You know, farmers have off seasons. So is this a balance for you with your writing pursuit? So c- currently my my main job is teaching writing and composition at the college level. So I work at several local colleges. I'm in the process of starting my own little homestead farm at a property. Yes, right down the road. Um, it's been a, a dream I have seen through over the course of this strange pandemic year. Uh, but I will have my own uh, little space to grow and produce market garden sized produce and hopefully enough to support my family and my friends. Can you just describe that? You're starting up another sure. homestead. Yeah, I'm starting up a, a homestead. It's called Little House Farm. I'm building a, a tiny house. And it's also a reference to Little House in the Prairie, which was one of my very favorite books growing up as an independent young woman. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I bought eight acres of, of timbered land that had been farmed back in the 1790s when this part of the country was open sheep pasture and had since become overgrown and harvested several times for its lumber. Um, I cleared about two acres of it and have a uh, greenhouse set up there and will grow my own vegetables, fruit and berries, as well as some flowers because I love bringing flowers to the farmer's market. Uh, But I'm only doing things I love. I'm only doing uh, varieties that I think are amazing or beautiful or delicious. And I'm trying to keep it small enough scale that it's just me and maybe friends on the weekend, but nothing that is going to break my back. I've, I've done that before. So in the, in the book, you're, you're on another, 
on uh, someone else's farm. Yes. And now you're going to get your own little I'm going to get my earth. own little piece of the earth. I had a, a sort of an experimental uh, farm of my own when I lived in South Carolina, which I did for about five years. And when I was down there, I worked for an urban farm. So I, I feel how, you know, sort of punk this is. We actually grew up on a rooftop in the middle of a city, which was very strange. Wow. <laughs> I had a small uh, farm there that I did a 20 week CSA for uh, 12 families and it was a rental property. So I knew I wasn't coming back to it, but this is my first time that I have a property where I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking five, 10, 20, 50, what, what does this look like when I pass it over to someone else down the line? So it, it is a really exciting moment for me. So organic farming has always been important also. And I, I know maybe it was the other folks farm, but mm -hmm. um, 20 years organic farming is a long time. Uh, yes. Most people use organic practices, and, but they can't really say they're certified. Mm -hmm. um, and this farm was certified. And I know mm -hmm. that is a, that entails a lot just in itself. We it tell does. a little bit about the trials and tribulations of getting certified. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, it's a two-year process to begin with. Um, in the transition, while some of those pesticides are, and herbicides are uh, seeping out through the soil or becoming mm -hmm. not as potent, you cannot market your produce as organic. Uh, and then after that point, after undergoing uh, a lot of paperwork and a lot of inspection work, you have to have plans and documentation that show that everything you brought into the farm comes in as an organic or what qualifies as organic. So it's both a, a system of healing the soil itself and setting yourself up in uh, the office, in the farm office, to <laughs> document that you've been following the practices that you're promising your customers. I know a lot of folks struggle and, it, and it's hard to get that certification. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I think I've heard that also you can't just certify one crop. You have to certify each one. Is that correct? Well, it depends on where you're selling it. Uh, and in Vermont, New Hampshire, because our land is so small, we don't have any of the big fields you guys have out west. Most people grow in a diversified manner anyways. Uh, wow. So you wouldn't just have one crop. Um, but I, I think if you were a monoculture farm producing know, pumpkins for a market, you may be able to certify just the one crop because you'd be growing it in a way that was unique to the rest of your operation. But here, I mean, we got, you got a line of tomatoes and then you've got garlic and then you have some peonies and it's all mixed in. So it would be really tricky to, to certify just one of those things. There's a good little part in the book about garlic and garlic mm. is really dear to me also. Oh, it's yeah. one of those things, <laughs> it comes, it comes on its own. It's, you don't, you plant in the mm -hmm. winter time. It has a totally different cycle. And I, I really, I really love it. And it shows that you do too in the book. I do. I love garlic and it's the same thing for us. It has a, it's entirely its own schedule. There's nothing else that we put in the ground. We plant it here in late October and then cover it with straw or mulch around Thanksgiving. And it's really the first thing that comes up in the fields after the snow melt. Um, and because of the process of seed saving, uh, and then it's clonal, so it's it's not even um, it's it, an actual physical remain of the crop. It, to me, after many years at this farm, it came to represent our kind of our collective experience and efforts, and it was a way to reconnect with 
all my friends who'd worked there and touched the garlic or cleaned the garlic, planted it because everyone had some interaction with it because it was such an important crop, no matter what time of year we were working in. It becomes it's your own strain after mm-hmm. a certain amount of years. After you keep growing it and mm-hmm. planting it, it climatizes to your yeah. soil, to your, it grows. It's got you inside I of it. I know it does. And guess what I have in the ground right now at my place? I have garlic um, and I'm, I have uh, several different strains that I'm kind of testing out to see what does best in my, my land. Um, but it, it is, I mean, it, it's such a unique crop. There's really nothing like it. And I love to cook with it. There's, there's nothing and there's no cuisine that I like that doesn't have garlic <laughs> at the center of it. So I love being able to devote time to, <laughs> to something I want to eat. Okay. I got a question for you though, yes. Megan, that's how much garlic did you plant this season? Cause Al, I swear is always trying to best his record. Oh, how much garlic did I plant? I did not plant. I mean, this is a homestead size farm at the farm and in the book here, we were planting, uh, well, we were harvesting over about 2000 pounds of garlic, um, and then planting a fraction of that. But, um, this year I, I, I bought in doing mental math. I think I planted about 30 to 35 pounds, um, which is way more than I need, but I I really want to, keep saving the seed stock. And I also want to be able to retail it at, at market. So yeah, we'll see how it, it how it grows. That's at least a few thousand heads of, of, of garlic. Uh, 35 That's the pounds, whole, I would yeah. Believe. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> Al likes it so much. He helps other people plant garlic too. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy. It's so, it's so much fun. It feels so much of farming is like complicated and backbreaking. And this is kind of a joyful thing. You just press it in with your thumb and it it becomes a garlic plant. It's really amazing. (laughs) One of the things that you have mentioned a couple of times over the course of our interview is that you want to take care of friends and family, whether you sell Mm. it in a CSA or not. I kind of hear that, that you see um, the farm not only tending your soul and spirit, but those around you. Yeah. Uh, And that the the whole circle of, of farming, of producing something, ends at someone's table. And that was always a, a thing that I loved to do, whether it was going to farmer's markets or working in our farm stand, packing our CSA, seeing what you grew go to someone else. And over the past year, coming on two years now, um, with global food supply being what it is, um, I happened to be in lockdown in a place where I had no access to local food or the ability to grow my own food. And I realized uh, that I, I had this amazing skill set that is so vital, and I really needed a place where I could uh, put that to use and be able to support. I'm the oldest of four. My my parents, I'm actually calling in from their house, like, very close to them, and I, I really want people to have the the stuff that they need to to be well and to be healthy. Nice. So obviously, there's snow outside your window. There's winter there you're not doing a whole lot of farming (laughs) but I bet I bet you're planning for next year I am I I've already ordered all my seeds because as you know seeds are still in short supply um Mm -hmm. got the garlic in the ground I'm, I'm in the process of constructing this hoop house what I'm really excited about that will happen for me before I start to put plants in the ground is maple sugaring season so I live on a property that has many old maples and I'm going to get a little backyard uh 
boiler and make my own syrup. And that's something that's relatively new to me and special in this part of the world. I love that. You know, I grew up in New York and mm-hmm. and uh, this dates me, but I go back to the 60s when I was a kid and I remember the tin buckets with yes. the little tin roof yeah. over the top, each <laughs> one one on each tree hanging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in the 70s I remember tubing all yep. going to a to a buck a barrel in the middle of the yard somewhere. Mm-hmm. But always having the folks who tapped the trees always gave us syrup. So we had mm-hmm. the syrup from our own trees. Oh, there's, so nice. there's nothing like that. I really. know. I know. I'm My mother's family up in Vermont has a huge sugar grove and I've grown up with it. So I, I didn't realize how expensive or how precious it was. I mean, I drown my pancakes in maple <laughs> syrup, um, but I do love it. And I, I do I do a little bit of cooking and preserving, which is a product I hope to take to market. And it will be really nice to have some of the the sugar from my farm, sweeten up my jams and and other things that I'll sell. I remember figuring out that dad's special uh, syrup was better than what I was putting on my pancakes. I remember that (laughs) at a certain point, like, hmm, that's just for dad. I don't think so. uh, Yeah, (laughs) he got got the upgrade. (laughs) Yeah, Megan, it's been such fun talking to you. We'd love for people to be able to catch up with you. You got a website? Mm -hmm. I do. It's MeganBaxterWriting.com. You gonna blog about the uh, a separate blog for your farm or anything? Or, I am. Or? I'm. I'm. I'm in the process of getting it up and running. It'll be littlehousefarm. Uh, dot com, and I will be updating people as I go along in that process. Well, we'll keep track of you, Megan. And once you get your little farm going, we'll have you on again. Oh, I would love to do that. Thank you guys so much. And uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I love uh, the part of the world you're calling in from and wish I could come see you all soon. And that was Megan Baxter, author of Farm Girl, a memoir. Man, I really enjoyed that. And you guys have some connections there, it sounds like. I was. It was good. Well, uh, folks, we're looking for more ideas for the show, so please re- email radioactive at krcl.org, or you can reach out to Al if you've got an urban farming uh, take, or if you are a local homegrown musician. Well, how can folks catch up with you, Al? They can catch up at me at punkrockfarmer23 at gmail.com or on Facebook at punkrockfarmer. And um, next week, I do have uh, Greg Batts going to be with us. And very exciting news. The Ogden Seed Exchange will be happening in person this year. So that's one of the biggest, best events. Uh, my, one of my most favorite events besides the farm conference. Um, boy, oh boy, a lot of seed savers, a lot of local seed, um, just a great place to hobnob with all the gardeners. And that's our show, Al. Again, happy birthday, KRCL. And here's one more from Night Marcher right here on KRCL 90.9 FM. Happy birthday, KRCL, listeners, community radio, yeah.